Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hi, Louise. We're back again for Betty Jean Lifton, Journey of the Adopted Self. This time we're on chapter 14 and the found adoptee. So yes, it made me think of you. Ah, it did. That actually made me think of you in places too. <laughs> well, I was so, never found. I went, yep. did, went out and did the finding. You did the finding. And yeah. they also, so this one is about being found and mm-hmm. people coming to find you, which yeah, I, I had that happen. And there's actually, well, we'll start at the beginning here. So there are adoptees who say they will never search, but one would not object to being found by their birth mother. It would mean she cared enough to look for them. They remain in a psychological holding pattern, passively leaving it up to fate to decide what happens. I actually thought that was, there was a couple of little dingers in here where I was like, oh, they're just waiting for fate to decide. Right. That that was me a hundred percent. Was it? Yeah. I don't know if now though, I mean, now if you and I were doing this, I'd be all over the search and all that. It's just that I would at that age, it was the last thing on my mind, really. I wanted to know who I was, but I didn't have the energy or the bandwidth almost. It's probably good people found me, I guess. Yeah. So. I was the opposite where I just was like, I am going to do this and, <laughs> you know, sent it all off right yeah. when I, you know, when I was sick, I guess close to nine months pregnant, didn't take long to find, you know, it was like a six month process. And well, and I think that's kind of what the chapter is about. There's a couple different types of paths people choose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she made a quote that if you're not ready to be found, it's not a good time to be found either. Mm-hmm. And I related to a lot of that when the pullback thing, like, oh, great, this is all crashing on and you have no clue what's going on because you didn't choose it. And then people are hurt because you pull away. And she talked a lot about the complications of, you know, the guilt of adoptees yeah. with their adoptive parents. Yeah. So that might prevent people from from going out there and searching, you know, For sure. having that guilt. And- I have friends who will never search because they have that guilt and they'll talk to me about it. And I'm like, I have that guilt. But then when it happens to you, you're kind of forced into it. And then you realize you got to go through this stuff. I mean, not everybody's mm-hmm. going to search. We, we know that, but you should never not do something out of guilt. Right. I was really, right. I'm really a guilt person, easily guilted, not so much anymore in general. Yeah. Well, I think most adoptees, right? We talked about that with someone recently. It's yes, just about, you know, being living our lives for other people. Yeah, 100%. From starting, you know, from the get go. Yeah, making everything okay for everybody, for everybody you, else but ourselves. What do you think about the birth mom part about them searching? I, I like that she talked about that because some birth moms do search. Well, that's what this whole chapter is about the birth mm-hmm. mom searching. I highlighted something here birth mothers who awaken to their grief realize that they were not aware of what was happening when they let their children disappear into the dark underworld of the adoption system. It was as if they had turned away. They accused social workers, their parents, the adoptive parents, the closed system itself of abducting their child. Because the lips of record keepers are sealed, the child has vanished from the mother into the land as if of the as if dead. As that was pretty dead. poignant. It is. And again, once again, this chapter just left me feeling sad and, you know, just how 
just the layers of adoption and the, you know, the, the grief all the way around, you How's know, with the industry? adoptee and the, and the birth mother really is that grief that. And she really tackles the closed adoption system, obviously. And it's, I feel like, I don't know that I was ever aware of what a racket it was sort of, you mm-hmm. know, it's a money-making closed that racket that hurts the mother and the baby. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be that way. And there is a section in here where she interviews different adoptees who I think they're her, her patients, they're yeah. her patients. And they found yeah. their birth mothers searched them out in their teens. And yeah, there's a whole them, section about yeah. adolescence being found. And yeah, um, and I thought two of them had a really interesting that they did well with that. They could weigh their world and live with one family and be close to another. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope modern that one girl did not have that, but I'm hoping that that's what it's sort of leading towards. But I mean, if they're, you know, obviously the ideal is family preservation being the number one yeah. choice. Obviously there are situations in which, you know, did people that can't care for their kids or, but again, like let's not change the name. And this is a whole other topic that strays off from our chapter. <laughs> kind of, or it kind of, <laughs> it's kind of, here's the part that you probably reminded you of me. The fear of being found, how adoptees respond to being found can depend on whether they're living on their own or sense of guilt toward their adoptive parents, how much they have disavowed their feelings about being adopted. And I'm going to skip a little bit here. She said something else. Here's the quote I like. Winnicott had been describing the fear of the non-searcher when he wrote about the fear of being found before one is ready to be found. Mm -hmm. And unlike the adoptee who evolved psychologically in the process of searching and is ready for reunion, the adoptee who is found by the birth mother is still in a deep sleep and may not be there to be found. I, I, you- <laughs> and they highlighted that too. Yes. <laughs> I just like that, the deep sleep, because even if you're found doesn't mean you're found, which is kind of profound. You may be like, okay, well, we, we had a guest recently made me laugh. Remember when he found people on Ancestry, he's like, okay, yeah. just move on. Yeah. <laughs> Then the rest of the the chapter really just gets into all the stories of birth mothers seeking out their children and how it worked out. The last story was really, oh, that was just such a sad story, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, and this is one of those horrible stories where she was adopted into a family and then was molested by her father over and over again. And, and she had to just, she disengaged from herself really. Yeah. And then was found by her birth parents and then went to live with them, changed her name back to what her birth name had been. And then it took a while for them to kind of work out the kinks because she was so damaged by what had happened with her adoptive family. And she was working out those things in a bad way too, doing Mm -hmm. the acting out. Yes. Coming on to her biological father and because that's the only bio- way she yeah. knew. Yeah, that was her biological father. Because her biological parents were together. Right. And she um, was the one that they gave up when they were really young. Mm-hmm. Like when I end these chapters, sometimes I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's like heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. And this yeah. happens still. I mean, we know a lot of people have been through so much trauma. I feel lucky, there's that word, but that I didn't have a lot of trauma. I didn't, you know, that I had people who love me because the layers it's not of, always the case. No. Yeah. The layers. It's just like, there's already uh-huh. the trauma of relinquishment. Then adding on all those extra layers is, you know, hard to ever recover, you know? Yeah. It is really hard to recover. Our guest coming up actually was 
a little bit into like I was thinking about what happened with her. This will be kind of a good segue. Yes. So shall we get to her? Let's get to her. Okay. See you soon. See you soon. Hey, we just want to give a shout out to all of our Patreons to say thank you. We are so grateful for your support. And really, we can't thank you enough. If anyone would like to contribute, you can go to patreon.com and search adoption, the making of me. So many people have reached out wanting to be guests, and we would love to come to you weekly to make that happen. Your support will help us get there. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you. Thanks. Hello. Welcome to another episode. We are here today with someone who reached out to us on our website, who's been listening. And we love that. We love when that happens, when we meet people through the website, just from listening and want to tell their stories. We want to hear every adoptee's story. So I'd like to introduce Lenore Hiller today. Hi, Lenore. Hi, Lenore. Hello. I want to just say thank you so much for this opportunity. I was telling Louise before this started that I don't, I don't talk a lot about my adoption story. People close to me know my story just because it's hard to explain what it's like to be adopted. It is. I agree. So I was adopted from Caserta, Italy, which is in Southern Italy in 1967, September 8th, 1967. I was We're all Virgos. But I was actually born in January of 1966. Oh, Oh. (laughs) we take that back. Yeah. Never mind. (laughs) So I was 20 months old when I came to the United States. So I didn't really know. I think I knew I was adopted for most of my life. I think my parents told me when I was young. I did know that I was from another country. I think I knew that first. What were the circumstances of your adoption and where were you for those 20 months? I was with my mother then in a hospital and then I was in an orphanage. So you were with her for? About five months. Mm. Yeah. So what happened was, I think my brother actually, I have an older brother. He's five and a half years older and he was, he's my parents' biological child. So I think I know that when I came from Italy, they were like taking me around to meet all my cousins. I knew that I had, I came with my ears pierced and I had little gold hoops. And I know that I spoke Italian. I was 20 months old. So as much as a 20 month old can speak. So that was kind of unique. And I remember I was adopted into a town full of Italian immigrants. But I remember even as a little child feeling like something's wrong here. like. I'm either the wrong kind of Italian or or they are. Like I'm not the same as these people, but I couldn't put like put my finger on it. Where were you? Where did you go to? I went to New Kensington, Pennsylvania, which is full full of Italian immigrants, right? So and you think, oh, you're just gonna fit right in. Uh, fish out of water, even in the Italian community. Right. My brother was getting his hair cut and the barber was Italian and he wouldn't give me a lollipop unless I would answer him in Italian. And at that point, I don't think I spoke Italian anymore. Maybe I was four or five. And I was so embarrassed because I was afraid to speak Italian because I thought if I get this wrong, he's not going to give me that lollipop and I want that lollipop. I mean, it was just such a weird Like it was just a weird feeling. So one day I was standing outside and I remember it being like autumn because I can remember the like the angle of the sun being in the fall. 
And some neighborhood boys walked by and my brother said, hey, come over here. I have to tell you something. He said, this is my sister's adopted. And I was like, I am. And they said, no, she's not. And he said, yes, she is. And they said, okay, then where are her parents? Where are her other parents? And he said, they died in a car accident. And I went, they did? I mean, I said, we have to tell mom because like, she's going to want to know this. So I remember. How how old were you then? Five and a half. Hmm. I went running into the house with my brother to tell my mom that my parents had died in a car accident. And she was so mad at my brother because I think maybe that, you know, she probably didn't want him talking about it that. And she said, that's not true. You, you lied. You made up a story. And I felt so bad for my brother, right? She's like, like you know, just Why? having having a brother five years older, the same thing, five and a half years older, and he was not adopted. We had so many weird little things like this. Because they're trying to figure out their story too with this. So they just, yeah. So he thought that that would be a good answer, that he had to have an answer. So you did not know you were adopted at that point? I think I didn't understand what it meant. Okay, okay. Then that's when I said, well, what happened to her? And my mom said, she was very poor and she couldn't keep you. So to me, that started kind of my lifelong fear of poor, right? Mm. Poor means you'll be sent away if you're poor. Mm. So I kind of always had this feeling of, having to take care of myself, if that makes any sense, like just a fear of being returned all the time. So I, I, I guess I can talk about my story, but like all of the manifestations now that I know of my behavior growing up was all due to that. Isn't that amazing how later in life you, you can look back and see? Yes. And your life just kind of everything makes sense when you yeah. have that moment mm-hmm. of realization. So I mean, I had terrible separation anxiety, didn't know what that was. And I was very hypervigilant to my brother said that if my parents, they used to go out to dinner and I would just cry and cry and cry. And he would, he said he would sit on the floor and pray to God that I would just stop crying. I was just so afraid and hypervigilant. And some of that manifested in me feeling like just very unsafe. Mm. And very unsafe in my body. Like I was always afraid that I was sick or dying, right? That I had something wrong with me and I couldn't figure it out and I had to take care of myself. So I think when I was like about, I want to say four and a half, five, my parents went to Spain for a few weeks. And when my mom came back, when they came back, my mom had terrible pneumonia. And the dog, this was back in like in 1970, the doctor actually came to the house then. Because they knew the doctor and he came to the house and my mom was very sick and I wasn't allowed in the room. I was begging to go in the room and just say, just let me lie on the bed with her. And they're like, no, she's very sick and you you can't go in. And that's when I I remember, and this is funny now, I started reading the Dr. Spock baby and child care book because I thought I was dying. So I kept reading like, how to take care of myself, like trying to figure out at that age, like what thermometer to get and like what to do so I wouldn't be sick. I mean, it's crazy now when you think about it. 
not so crazy. I think it's a lot of trauma and all of that. It's just being able to connect the dots now yes, is so, exactly. so mind blowing. I quick question. Was this your birth name, Lenore? No. They, so, so they changed your name at 20 months. Right. Okay. So that had to be weird. That was weird. So now the story goes on, you know, I'm trying to figure out who I am in this family. And I kept trying to like make sure that they loved me. I would always ask them if they would love me. And I made this <laughs> really funny. I made a little chart, mom, dad, Joe, do you love me? Yes or no? And they would have to check it off. And my brother checked no, right? <laughs> Be funny. And my mom was like, no, and she scratched that out. But yes, right. Okay. <laughs> gotta love Joe. I think Joe might have to meet my brother. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just loved my brother and I, I wanted to be him really because I could just see how he moved in the world versus how I moved in the world. Like I was very fearful and hypervigilant and to the point he, he knew his place. Yeah. Like, he was just like, he, he was, had genetic mirroring. And, yes. And, you know, every, I have this big family, all these cousins on both sides. And they would probably be shocked to hear me talk about this, right? Were they also Italian? I mean, I know they weren't the same Both kind of them were Italian, right? Okay. But again, like I could never embrace that side of me. I just never could do it. It's just really, it bothers me that I can't do that. So when I was 12, my father got very sick and he passed away. And it, you know, it was very, it was devastating because he was a lawyer. And he was about to become a federal judge. Oh. So we had that whole spring. He was going through being vetted by the FBI. The president of the United States had to appoint him. And then he got sick. Well, he had been sick when my brother was just three. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But he overcame that. What happened was, this is such a long story. The drugs that they gave him at the time, just a steroid to suppress his immune system, they didn't know back then that you can't suppress someone's immune system that many years. So he got a rare virus. If you ever see those commercials for MS drugs, when they talk about a rare virus, PML, well, that's what he got. Yeah. So we didn't tell anybody he was sick because my mom said he, he could get better and we don't want to ruin anything for him to get this appointment to become a federal judge. I mean, here's this, my father was, his parents were immigrant. Here's this person from this small town with immigrant parents and look what he's made of himself, right? But he, you know, he passed away. But this was a time when we really didn't talk about anything. So he passed away and we never talked, really talked about it because it was just so painful. So my father dies in May. My brother goes off to college six hours away in September. My next door neighbor and best friend's family is transferred to Australia. (laughs) And I go to middle school from this little tiny school to this big middle school. And I just, I don't even know how I got through school. I spent literally most of the day just staring out the window, honest to God. So I feel like everything that people learned in school, I didn't learn because I wasn't there. I was just... I said, always say to my husband, like, I don't, I can't diagram a sentence. Oh, I'm with you on that. In history, because my dad was sick when I was 
finishing sixth grade. He was sick at the end. I just would stare out the window. So I had I, the same thing. I just have to tell you, because I was going through trauma at that period of time too. And I, same thing. I don't know anything. <laughs> I just was like, I didn't, I wasn't there that day. I always say mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't there that day for a whole year, but that was just a really dark period in my life. I would say I probably had, I had a lot of depression, but I didn't know that's what it was until, now this is going to sound weird, until high school. Well, when I was 12, I discovered my name. So after my father died that summer, we were going through all of his papers. And my mom must have had the file cabinet open. And there it was. There was a file that just said adoption on it. So I I got up real early one morning and I opened the file and I just pulled that out. And I was kneeling on the floor looking through it. And there was my name. So I wrote it on a piece of paper and my name was Josephina and wrote it down that what that's what my name was. And my there I look up, there's my brother standing there. I thought it was a hard job. You weren't supposed to talk about this. Like it wasn't like you're adopted, don't talk about it. It was just like this unspoken, you just don't talk about this. You're here, we love you, you know, move on. Yeah. Right. So my brother took the paper and he said, I'm your brother. They're your parents. And he like, he tore it in the paper almost in half. And then he gave, handed it back to me. So then I just put it back in the file and closed it and then put it back and never, I just never looked at it again and then just moved on from that. I find that interesting. My brother has a lot of defensiveness about being my brother and I wanted to be like him and very much followed him and was in awe of him. He was like the golden child type thing. And I was always messing up and the little, you know, but it's interesting how he had that same. Well, yes, but my brother was, he's so handsome and just really cool. Mm-hmm. But I was just very, always follow the rules. The very good adoptee would never do anything, never talk back. But if I would, it would be like, I told my husband a few times I unleashed a rage on my mom. Like it shocked me. It's like, where did that come from? Just out of nowhere, like zero to 10 and 60 seconds type of rage that I unleashed. And, you know, now that I know about trauma, it's like I must have had felt like I was put in a traumatic state. And suppression. I mean, trauma and suppression. Right. I just suppressed my thoughts, any feelings Mm. I had. And then occasionally I just explode. And, you know, I've probably exploded on some friends too, super embarrassed about it and can remember all the times I've done that and just like, oh my God. Like Me maybe too. Me this too, my, actually. This is my apology tour. But it's men. Like, <laughs> you didn't know. Like you didn't. Oh, I like how you called it your apology tour. I feel yeah. Like this whole podcast <laughs> is our apology tour. <laughs> I go off to college, I studied music. That's what saved me because, well, remember my best friend in Australia, she comes, they come back, they're transferred back to Pennsylvania, back into their home next door. I lost it. I'm, I was used to people leaving. I couldn't take people coming back. This is going to sound crazy, but I, all, I was suicidal. I mean, I couldn't have her back because I had already like, that's over now. Like, let's move on. That's over. And I just had this 
awful feeling. And I would pray a lot at night and cry a lot. I couldn't figure out. And I finally told my mom, like, I need some help. There's something's wrong. She talked to our neighbor who was a doctor and he said, well, I can, there's this psychiatrist. So I started seeing a psychiatrist, right? 1982, I think I was 16. And he asked me to tell him about myself. And I mentioned that I was adopted. And I asked, do you think that has anything to do with this? And he said, did you go to a good home? And I said, I did. He said, well, then no. God. It's of no value. So I said, okay. It's of no value. So Uh, this is really funny. So after a while, I guess this was a psychiatry with, this was traditional psychiatry, like analysis. Why didn't it? I'm 16, right? He said, I would have to start coming three days a week. And my mom's like, no, you're not going three days a week. Like, we're not doing this. You're already taking voice lessons. (laughs) 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 He said, I could decide whether I want to do that or voice lessons. Well, what would you choose, right? (laughs) Voice lessons. (laughs) (laughs) So much. So I just threw myself into that. I just told the psychiatrist, "I I I can't come anymore. And I said, why can't I just come once a week? But because analysis doesn't work that way. And I was like, well, my mom's never going to go for that. So thank you for your time. He lost me at no, it's of no value. That's right. Yeah. So I was just like, okay. He should revisit his entire career after (laughs) that. (laughs) Where he was in his name, I can't remember any of that. So I threw myself into music. I auditioned, got into music school, did that. That's where I met my husband, who I call St. David now. As I put him through a lot, just a lot of testing and fear that he'll leave or fear that he's going to die, fear that I'll be alone without him. I call him my world translator because sometimes I say I don't live in the world. I live in like the periphery, but you live in the world. So tell me what this is in the world. Like, is this normal? Like, I'm always kind of trying to translate. And I feel like he does that. He helps me with that. So, you know, I, I got through music school, but then I, I only taught music for a little while. I was a music teacher. But again, I would see how my husband faced the world versus how I faced the world. We both studied music. He was so confident and I was so fearful of what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not this? What if I'm not that? And people judging me. Yeah, I just had such a, so fragile, such a fragile ego. But it's like the only way in a performance type of career is to put yourself out there. Well, I'm hiding my whole life, right? I can't do that. You know, I just couldn't do that. So I ended up, I went to school, then I got a master's in counseling because I love stories and people. I love to hear people tell their truth. Mm-hmm. So. That's how I discovered I wanted to go into counseling is like, if people would just be allowed to talk, what if I could get paid to listen to people talk and they could tell me anything they wanted to say and I wouldn't judge them. So, you know, while I was in the counseling program, this was 1990, like the spring of 90s when I started the counseling program. And I was married in the summer of 1990. So while I was in the program, again, this was back in the early 90s, nothing about adoption, loss, trauma, nothing like was ever covered in the, in the program. And that's, that's not that long ago, you know? Do you think? Yeah. 
but I think they knew. I mean, they know about separation. I know they know about separation before mm-hmm. 1990. Of course. I just wonder where they kind of, is it all connected, this adoption industry? And I don't know. I don't know. So, I mean, I never thought that it had anything to do with that either, right? So while I was in the program, one of the women who was in a PhD program needed people to counsel. So I said, well, I'll be one of your subjects, right? And she kept telling me, like, as she was counseling, it seems like you're looking for like a mother, you're looking for like a a mother figure. And I was like, that's terrible, because I have a mother, right? My mother was a lovely person, but a strong force larger than life. She was the oldest of five and always take charge, right? And I'm sort of very passive. I just did whatever she said. I just really did because I didn't want any trouble, you know? Yeah. You didn't want to be sent back. No, right. It's just like, do whatever you have to do. This is, oh my gosh, am I telling too many side stories here? No, not at all. She used to bowl. She was a bowler. She was into golf. She was much more physically active than I was. Even like I used to run, but she would bowl on Monday nights at midnight. I was so afraid. I was home alone. I was terrified to be home alone. And I would write her these little notes every Monday night. So if you heard about trauma, if you heard about the fight, flight, freeze or fawn. I would fawn. Those letters, those little notes were all me fawning over her. Like, I love you so much. I'll see you in the morning. I hope you had a great night. And I would leave those every Monday night on her bed table. I think because I was afraid she was going to like disappear. Yeah. Mm. I was a big note writer. You're saying this like, oh my God, I wrote so many little notes. So many little notes. So I'm in this program and they had this workshop called the Human Dynamics Workshop. And it was a week-long workshop in the master's program. It was six days, 12 hours a day of like group therapy techniques. It was three credits. So I'm like, awesome. I can get three credits in one week. I'm going to do it. So we're in this workshop. It's where I went to undergraduate school. So we lived on the campus. They put me in my husband's old dorm room, right? So I'm in my husband's old dorm room. And I'm like, this is wild. So it was my second, our second anniversary. And in the work, one of the workshops, people were just bringing up things that they were thinking. And I said that today's my second anniversary. And I'm thinking about the day I got married, how disconnected I felt with everybody. Like it was a beautiful day. And I love my husband. I love the wedding. It was beautiful. But like, I felt like my cousins were all much more connected than I was. And I said, could it be because I'm adopted? And the woman facilitating said, same thing. Did you go to a good home? Yes. I, then it has nothing to do with that. Everything's fine. You just need to get past that. And I was like, all right. So there's the second time in 10 years. And you're asking the questions. Most people don't even ask. You've asked twice professionals. So I'm like, all right, Lenore, you got a problem. So I finished my degree. I graduate. I'm in my first job. I'm a temporary counselor at a community college. I'm there maybe eight months. One of my first students that I did for, I did a lot of academic counseling. This was a counseling, counseling type of session. She starts telling me that she's adopted Mm. and she wants to meet her birth mother. And I said, well, do you know where she is? And she said, yeah, she's about a mile from my house. 
I just remember thinking, leave now, get in your car and go over there. Like I couldn't imagine. So that started something in me. I was 28 and I thought, here I am with this girl and my issues started coming up and I just really wanted her to leave, right? I didn't want to, I'm like, I can't, all I kept thinking was, I can't help you. I can't help you. That's all I kept thinking. Well, really desperately wanted to hear her story because again, never felt like I met an adoptee. Oh my God, what do adoptees think? Like, I want to hear what another adoptee thinks or feels, right? So that was really interesting. So one day I said, let's see if there's some kind of like support group or something. We have this book in our little resource library called The Where to Turn. So I opened it and there was on page whatever, the Pittsburgh Adoption Connection. I never heard. I didn't know that. So I photocopied it. I gave her, I said, here, why don't you call them? So she left and I waited for all for my other co-workers to leave. And I popped my head out of the office and looked around. No one was there. I called the Pittsburgh Adoption Connection. <laughs> and this woman on the other end was a birth mother. Never met a birth mother, right? And didn't even know that was the title, that that was like something that they were referred to. So she's telling me she goes into this tirade about she lost her daughter. Her daughter went to this home. The only thing she specified, this would have been during the baby scoop era. The only thing that she specified was that her daughter go to a Christian home. Well, they sent her daughter to Christian scientists. Oh, boy. So her daughter had a, she had a high fever and they just prayed over oh. her. So she had like brain damage, right? Mm-hmm. She's telling me all this on the phone and I'm just like, what is going on? Like, this can't be real. This can't be true. I remember thinking like they would never do that, right? They would never do that. Okay. So she said, we're having this huge workshop on Saturday. I'm so glad you called. You should come. So I went to the workshop. While I'm in the workshop, it splits off into a private detective. And he's telling people how to start searching. This is 1994. So I raised my hand. I said, how would I even begin to search? I wasn't born in this country. And he said, did you come through an agency? And I said, well, I came through Catholic Charities. A woman in front of me turns around and says, I'm a social worker from Catholic Charities. Why don't you call, you should call me. And I said, call you and like, say what, right? Like, I don't know. So I called her and she said I could get non-identifying information. So I did. I sent for my non-identifying information. And that's where I was. Re- I received that. And I was able to see my my name and my birth mother, what she looked like. And I had five older siblings. I almost fell over. I couldn't believe it. They had a picture of your your mom. No picture, just just what she looked like. What she looked like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how old she was 32. And I never, I have to say this, and I didn't say this at the beginning. I never thought about her. I never allowed myself to think about her. Mm -hmm. Never, never. I know it's hard to believe that probably, but. No, it's not hard to believe. I allowed myself to think about her. I just would, anytime I would try to think about her, I would just push it away because Mm -hmm. I'm, she's so far away. I'm never going to be able to find somebody that's 4,000 miles away. So get it out of your head and just move on was what I would do. So then I got that information and I, I went to my mom's house to tell her that you're not going to believe this. Like I have five siblings, right? And she said, I knew that. Oh, what? 
And I said, what? You knew that? And you never told me? And she said, well, you never asked. Oh, my gosh. Because oh. <laughs> it was this unspoken rule that. I only laugh because I think this is just the story of this. It's, yes. yes. It's just, right? I would have never asked because I just, it would have been breaking some kind of like code and I didn't want to like hurt her. Right. Right. So then I, I started to tell my brother, I told my brother that I was searching because I thought I better tell them I'm searching because I thought Catholic Charities was going to call them. That's how like fearful I was <laughs> <laughs> call them and report on me. So I wanted them to know I didn't want them to receive a call. So we go to Catholic Charities a couple weeks later. My husband and I took a day off to go in. She said, you could come in and talk to me, this social worker, right? So I think this is great. She's going to give me all my info. This is perfect. So we get there and she says, you know, this is a closed adoption and I can't tell you anything. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, this is how much I didn't know. I thought, oh, I thought I was just going to go in and she was just going to go, here's your file. Yeah. Here's the name. Here's Happy travels. Yeah. (laughs) So she said, I can't tell you anything. I said, I thought maybe you could just tell me her name. And she's like, no, but if you could guess her name. I'll confirm it. And I went, how am I going to guess somebody's name? Right? I mean, how could you guess somebody's name? <laughs> so I looked at my husband. He looked at me and I was like, I guess I'll try. She has two names. I said, oh, is it something like Anna? I said, like, do you think it could be something like Anna Maria? And she said, that's her name. What? She said, how did you do that? And I said, I don't know. You must have remembered from yes. the time you spent with her. Yeah. Something deep down in there. I couldn't believe my husband looked at me and I he was like, What just happened? And so we left. And she and, probably broke a lot of protocols with that, I would think. That's yeah. like, like confirming it. Yeah. Yeah. So I left and while I was at the conference, Nancy Verrier was presenting her book. It was brand new. It was the primal wound. Wow. And so I was sitting next to a birth mother and her and I, we cried through the whole thing, right? Because she's talking about abandonment and loss. And a few of us got together with a different social worker and they formed a support group. And so I started going to this support group every week. And then one night in the support group, she said, I have a name of somebody who I think he might be from Italy and adopted too. And I think he helps people if you want to give him a call. So I did. And he ended up being the person that is wrangling all of us. So I I know this is such a long story. But his his name is John. And he was also adopted from Italy. And his family is in California. So I called him in California. And he said, you're not going to get anywhere with Catholic Charities. But what you could do is send for a Freedom of Information act and send for your original file and they're going to give you your file and if your mother recognized you at birth her name will be there if her name's on there lenore if she recognized you i'll be able to find her anywhere if she's alive so that gave me such confidence so i filled out this form you know i had to have my alien number and and i just sent it and i waited and it was a month and her name was on there So there it was. So he said, she doesn't have a phone. So you're going to have to write a letter. 
which was what I did, you know, which was kind of funny because I was like, hi, here I am. <laughs> you know, that my name is Lenore Hiller, but you knew me as Josephina. And, I, you know, I don't want to bother you, which is really funny, right? I don't want to disrupt your life. I'd like to get to know you. And then I put in a picture of myself and then I just waited. And she wrote back in Italian. I had to get it translated. And then we set up a phone call, like a three-way call. So California, Pittsburgh, Italy, about two months later, we were able to get a phone call together. And that's where I just- And he was translating? Is that- Okay. So after he was adopted, they lived in the United States for a while. And then his whole family, they adopted four children from Italy. They went back and lived there for 10 years. Kind of give their kids the Italian- Right. One at that side. So there are 3,700 of us in the United States. And we're mostly in New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and California. Interesting. Yeah. We're called the Italian diaspora. So that's a diaspora is a dispersion of any people from their original homeland. Right. So he started a group. There wasn't Facebook and he started a group in 1989. It was like a Yahoo group or or something or AOL even. I wasn't in that then because I didn't meet him till 1994. So he's just been trying to, he looks at all the census records and he was able to map out that there are 3,700 of us here. Since I've known him for 27 years, he's just been trying to get all of us together. and so. I was lucky her name was there, but if it's not, those people had to petition the court. And there are people in the groups, in the, it's a Facebook group, they've, been, they've petitioned the court years ago, years and years, five, six, seven, eight. And you're petitioning the Italian. Italian. Oh, yeah. Trying to get your mother to give, yeah. to give up her name, say who she is. Yeah. So the, law, the laws around this are so draconian, really? you know? Yeah. So... I mean, so now you're on the phone call. I'm dying to know. I know. Like she just said she was in a very bad marriage and she had to leave him and she just left all the kids and he was really mad and he came after her and she met somebody else and she was pregnant with me. So she met somebody else. She fled and went seven hours away from him. She, he was your father or this other man was your father? We don't know. So she fled. She knows, I'm sure. But she fled him, met this other man. And according to her, she intended to keep me. I did live with her. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I didn't look like this new man. And so when people started saying, that's not your daughter, he was like, she's got to go. Um, <sighs> so I got really sick. I was very sick. and so. That's what I found in some of my records was I was with her till July. And then I had such terrible digestive issues. I was just so sick that she took me to the hospital. And then I ended up having sepsis. So I almost died. Like I was very sick. And then what I see is from July to October, she just kept taking me back and forth and back and forth. And what I think is he must have been making her life so difficult. Yeah that she just was like, I'm out. Like, I can't do this anymore. And I think, well, my records say at the very end there, 
a mother superior just came out and said to her one day, just leave her here and go, like put her up for adoption. We can just get her through the National Catholic Welfare Conference. And there's like Catholic Relief Services. It's like she could be a refugee. We can classify her as a refugee to get her out in the country and get her adopted to America. So my she signed the paper and then her husband found her and they took her to court and she was convicted of abandonment because she left her kids. So she went to jail. Oh my gosh. She went to like- jail while I was in the hospital. And then I went to the orphanage because then he signed the paper, her husband, her first husband. He signed for me to be relinquished too. And then I went to an orphanage. So I was in the hospital alone for like five months. Mm. Then I went to an or- the orphanage on Christmas Eve. I mean, oh, it's, That's, yeah. it sounds like, I don't know, Oliver or something. I don't know. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. So and I was so to- controlled by these men. Right. Yes. I was just going to say that. And, yeah. and in an Italian society, it's. And different. the husband abuses her, but then she goes to jail. Yeah. She gets, right. she flees for her life and then she goes to jail. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so then I went to this orphanage and I was just surrounded by these nuns. And there were the orphanage, there were 20 girls there. And like on the bottom floor was a school and like they did textiles there, they said. I saw that. And I was the youngest one there. I was 11 months old. So I lived in the quarters with the nuns, like with one young nun. I mean, it makes me sad. I wish I would have thought of that years ago. Like I wish I would have thought to look for her. Find her. <laughs> Try to find her. But when you read my my file, it's just so sad because you could tell the type of trauma I must have felt just being left in the hospital so many times, like her repeatedly leaving me must have been horrible because they said that I would sleep at any noise and I would just dark awake and cry. Like that would happen repeatedly during the night. I'm not surprised you had all that trauma in your childhood Mm -hmm. from all of this. I mean, this, I'm surprised you didn't have more, honestly. It's weird. And, and I, well, I have my dress, like this is the dress that I came in and I think I swear it It has, it has this little like embroidery or something on it. And I wonder if they didn't make it. Yeah. And, then, the, and the textile. The, right. Because there's yeah. no hands in it anywhere. And like, you know, there's nothing like that. Hmm. So so I'm I'm Josephina one day and then I get on a plane and I'm going to work the next day. So. <laughs> wow. So then when you were on the phone with her, how she, was that? And she said, she wrote back and said, I, I would have never been able to find you. And I thought that you were in New York because he said, I'm sending her new to New York and you will never see her again, oh. is what she told me that he said. And then she said, well, are you going to come and see me? And so we did. We went that summer, which is a whole other story. And I did write my memoir. So it's all in my memoir of just the whole trip. Oh, please make sure you will yes. we'll put the name of your memoir in our show notes so people can get it. It's not out yet. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's in my laptop. But just getting there, just getting to Italy and not speaking the language. And she had four other children after me. So she had a total of nine. Ten. Oh, 10. She had and you don't. Children. She had five, then me, then four after oh. me. 
And you don't know for sure that those older ones are not your siblings. They could be. They are my half siblings. Yes, but you don't know if they're your full or not. So it's just, now they have very strong feelings against her. Oh, I wondered about that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about DNA tests and all that, but they're probably like not on board. They let one brother did. And it, it just shows that he's a half brother, but it's confusing. So she wouldn't, it was very hard to be there because it's this little tiny town in Southern Italy. Nobody spoke English. There was no Google translate. There's no Uber. I stayed with my half sister and John, the man that helped me, the Italian adoptee, he said, don't stay with her, stay somewhere else. And I thought, well, why? First of all, we just didn't know what to do. We were, I mean, I was 29, but I might as well have been 12, right? Just my people like, oh, prepare, get ready and prepare. Well, I didn't prepare. I just jumped right in to this. And I think now that it was just so overwhelming. Like when I, we got there and I just had to wait for her to come over. She didn't have a phone, right? So my sister couldn't even call her. So I was like, how is she going to know that I'm here? And she just showed up and I didn't know what to do. We shook hands. Like I thought we would hug and it would be this Oprah moment. But I think she was very much on guard. Well, she had a lot of trauma as well. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, and all the kids. and Giving up a baby and being in jail in one foul swoop. And so there I am and they're just talking this rapid fire Italian and there's nothing to prepare you for that. And we tried, we took an Italian class, but no, no, (laughs) not at all. In the very first night we were there in Italy, my husband got up in the middle of the night to get some water and he opened the refrigerator. We stayed in this little bedroom that had a refrigerator in it. (laughs) And my little, my niece, my sister had three children and my little niece was like five. And I was like, you have to, you know, she's going to wake up. And my husband's standing there drinking a glass of water. And I said, I think that I have the wrong mother. I don't think like, do you think that they made a mistake? Like, do you think that she's really my mother? Or do you think this is wrong? He said, Lenora, it's her. It's like her name, your birthday, the town. I was just, I couldn't believe it. It was just. You're still missing the connection, really. So it wasn't like this big, let's talk and tell me everything. She talked to her daughter a lot. Like they would, you could see them having these heated conversations while I just sat there. But I spent an awful lot of time with my half sister, right? Because my birth mother, I would just have to sit in this house all day and wait for her to come because she was remarried to this man who essentially helped send me away also, right? Because he's the one that said she can't stay. Mm. So... I guess he was very upset that I was there. Yeah. So she had to sneak out to see me. All these years later, and he still yeah, couldn't. He still yeah. was like that. And and they kept telling me all week that I was going to see my other. I have two younger sisters and two younger brothers. Well, they wouldn't let me meet my sister. They wouldn't let me meet her. And the last day she sent a letter and it said, I really want to meet you, but my husband doesn't want me to be involved in this controversy. So I can't see you. She's, she put a little grape, like a grapevine 
in the letter, like a peace offering almost to say, like, I wanted to meet you, but I, I can't because he won't allow it. I mean, it's a very patriarchal society with mm-hmm. Catholic. I mean, you have a lot going on. there. And then I, oh, I my goodness. had children in 1998. I had, and then 2001, two sons. And that was mind-blowing, right? My first son, when I looked at him that night that he was born, I just looked at him and I thought, oh, my God, you know, who could give a baby away? Right. Yeah. And I remember he was a couple weeks old and I was changing his diaper and his right thigh I had a little brown mark on it. I thought, oh, my God, like who melted chocolate on his thigh? And then I said to my husband, oh, my God, he has the same birthmark I have on my right thigh. Ah, genetics, yeah. He's mine. Like, he's really someone I'm attached to in this world, like, in my life. Like, he's he's near me. I mean, so I do say that I hold a lot of trauma in my body. But I want to say that after my kids were born, like, I went back into the fog. My birth mother, like, we continued to have letters back and forth, but it was so arduous a process because I would have to write the letter, mail it to someone. He would have to take time to translate it. It was an Italian professor at the college where I worked. Then he would mail it back to me. Then I would have it mailed to Italy. Then I would wait for her. And I remember, like, we really weren't getting anywhere because we just weren't getting really deeper into conversation. I was like, I just can't continue to do this. And then I asked her, did you ever think of me? Did you miss me? Did you think of me? And she said, Lenore, I had to pretend that you were dead. That's Mm -hmm. what I had to do to survive. So that really hurt, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I can't do this anymore because I have these little kids and I'm working full time. I can't have this mental energy and this primal wound stuff is like for the birds. Like I'm not doing this anymore. So I just stopped writing to her and I feel really bad about that. But then in 2010, my nieces weren't little anymore. I don't know if you can follow this whole story. They reached out to me on Facebook and it was just so good to see them because they were grown up. The ones that you stayed with? The ones that I stayed with. Mm -hmm. So that summer I said, we went back in 2010. We went this time I said, I want to see those siblings in the, in the North, the older ones. And I reunited with them. Those oh, that was so great. Two of the five I was able to see. And they actually reached out to me when I came back from Italy the first time in 1995. He said, I'm your brother, Tarticio. Why didn't you see me when you were here? Well, I didn't know where he was. I had no way of knowing where they were. I didn't know how to find them. He found me. I sent a letter to an address. There was even a brother older than him. And he sat on the letter and then he gave it to my brother in like October. I was already gone the first time. So he wrote and then he and I wrote and then he filled in some of the my birth mother's tales. And they do not like her, right? Because she left them in a terrible situation. They went to orphanages and then they came out some went in some stayed some aged out those two are together and my sister said I knew you were born because you were still listed on the in the town I guess they have vital statistics I was listed as living there and she couldn't believe that I was there and nobody told her well I wasn't there 
they accidentally recorded me as being in her town. And she was like eight years old when I was born. And she was felt betrayed. Like here, my little sister's born and nobody is even telling me where she is. So now her father's a piece of work, I'm guessing. Yeah. (laughs) Are you still, and now are you catch us up to date? I see my brother on Facebook. He's not on there a lot, but he's just really very fun. And that was fun when we went back in 2010 and I took my children. They were 12 and my little son was eight, going to be nine when we went. And we went there and just to see Italy, but we really didn't get to see a lot of it because we were there on business, right? Right. right. But even that, like you're a member of that family, but you're not really. And I remember, so while I was in Italy, they were taking us to Liguria to the beach and it was, it's called the Italian Riviera and it's just so beautiful. And we were going down all these mountains, like through all this wine country and my phone rings and it's John from Italy. He translated for me one day while we were there and thank God, or else I wouldn't have gotten any more of the story without him. He said, are you doing okay? And I said, John, if I die today, I could go die in peace because I at least got to see them again. That is so beautiful. Uh, What a story. I can't wait wait to read your book. Me too. I could listen to this all day. Just, and there's so many intertwined factions of it. Yes. You know, like my head is always in Italy. I'm wondering if other international adoptees are like that. Like a lot of the time I'm thinking about Italy when I can go back and if I know, I guess maybe it's our my age. I think about like when I die, I tell my husband, like, I want to be laid out and I want to be cremated and I want some of my ashes to be put there too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's yeah. your home, really, yeah. you know. I wish I lived there part of the time. and Well, maybe you will. I point. know, that's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to live in Italy part of the time? I, <laughs> I want to embrace being Italian, but it's really hard because I... Again, it's that same thing I thought when I was like five, like either I'm the wrong type of Italian or the people here are like, yeah. it's that. And I remember when I became a citizen, I remember that day. I remember when we I came home from being a citizen, I had my American flag. I was so happy and I was waving it around. And I asked my dad, I said, dad, am I American or Italian now? And he said, you're American now of Italian descent. I said, oh, okay, thank you. Because I remember thinking I I have to give that up now because now I'm an American. I just remember that. Like Like, it's some mm. choice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you found this man, John, and the work he's doing. Yes. He sounds like a really... Connecting all these people. And that's a community too. It is. So it's called Italia Adoption and it's on Facebook. So if anybody ever hears this and they're an Italian adoption, Yes, that's a really great resource. Yeah. I bet somebody will actually. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. It was such a pleasure. I mean, just a beautiful story. You tell it so honestly and vulnerably. I just loved hearing it. Me too, Lenora. This has been wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you. What a story. That's really, she has such a tale. I could listen all day to her, how she tells it too. And so descriptive. I was actually picturing Italy and be that small little town and have translation and wait all day in the house. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think before she came on, she was saying she was re-listening to John on our podcast and how he was between two countries mm-hmm. and you don't fit in. And she's Italian, but not Italian, the right kind and how she says that. Yeah. Also, the thing that really jumped out at me was just the lack of awareness of the therapist. Twice. Twice. Oh, no. You had a happy home? Oh, you're fine. The last one told her to move on from that. Yeah. (laughs) And that she saw Nancy Verrier in early years discussing this. I know. I mean, because she describes herself as not being brave about it, but she was really going for this all along. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she's yeah. very brave and I can't wait to read the memoir. I did too. I loved her. So, well, another, another great, great episode. episode. <laughs> See you next See you time. Soon. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.